and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Seb Corson is an artist working in multiple media, including photography, sculpture, film, and video. His work has been presented in exhibitions and screenings in the United States and Europe. I enjoyed getting to know Seb, and I can really relate to and appreciate how he sees the world visually, very similar to the way I do. Please enjoy our interview, and be sure to check out his work online or in person. Here is Seb. Thanks for being on my podcast, Seb. Oh, it's great to be here, Scott. Thank you so much. We met not that long ago, maybe late last year at your show at uh, Lewis Carnegie. Yes. And before that, I was just such a big fan of your work on Instagram is where I saw it. I really feel like visually I'm very attuned to your eye. Like I feel like my eye is very similar. Mm-hmm. And so many times I've seen images of yours that have been like, oh, I would have taken that image. I mean, I love the way you look at lines and architecture and spaces and light and color. It's like all things I'm very attracted to myself. So Thank you. I appreciate that. I feel a kinship with you visually. Mm-hmm. So maybe if you wouldn't mind for... Uh, people that are listening that are not familiar with you. Maybe you could just introduce yourself. Sure. I'm an artist that works in multiple media. I've always worked in uh, several media, uh, oftentimes simultaneously. The last few years, it's primarily been um, sculpture and photography and uh, object making. But um, it's also included film and video and um, it's also... I play alto saxophone, so there's oh, wow. per- per- okay. performance in there as well. Um, there's so I, many things I don't know about you. Uh, <laughs> That's why this is kind of exciting. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, so I've, th- I've been thinking a lot about some of these things just in you know, preparing for our discussion. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this quite a bit. Um, and I guess I can t- sort of have a you know a s- scope of my life is can be sort of also related to three the three cities that I've lived in are ah. kind of like large chapters of my life or significant kind of a way to kind of organize you know my memories at least. 
Um, I was born in New Jersey, but I, my family moved out to Minnesota, uh, to Minneapolis, when I was uh, just a few weeks after my first birthday. Yeah. So I strongly identify with being a Minnesotan. Okay. Um, <laughs> at the moment, I'm wearing a Twins hat, and so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was a really great place to grow up. I lived there till I was about 20, I guess. I attended the Minneapolis College of Art and Design for two years. I didn't graduate, but... Getting back to you know earlier on, um, it's a it's an amazing community. There's incredible museums and uh, cultural resources there. Um, amazing art community. Um, we were about ten miles west of downtown, and um, my parents moved out there because it was a really good school district and it was a great school system. But we were very connected to the city, and we traveled back and forth to downtown. Mm constantly our friends uh, some of my friends referred to us as the new yorkers just because we were kind of cosmopolitan yeah we had a lot of paintings in our house oh, and cool music and many many books you know stuffed full of books so your parents sound like they were a good influence on you very much very much so my mother was an artist and so just uh, huge influence, um, but she also, you know, we went to a lot of classes and things like that. So it was a very creative uh, household and environment to grow up in. I was particularly fond of the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. We would travel back and forth, and I saw some really extraordinary shows there. Also, um, I've spoken about this before, and is that traveling back and forth and kind of observing this landscapes in these very rapidly changing environment, sort of suburban, exurban environment, mm-hmm. had a really profound impact on my kind of formative visual development. It would be going, going back and forth and just having kind of this perpendicular view of, of the landscape going by yeah. and seeing seeing all the development and all the just a continuous change um, and also just in the city, you know, you're always seeing things like really rapidly, like sort of fragmented trucks going by and words and things like that. Yeah, but, you must love Austin then. <laughs> yeah, definitely another high, you know, high velocity change in yeah, yeah, but just just that you know. Also, we would take um, because we had family in the east. We would travel back and you know take road mm. trips or have family vacations. But I think that uh, you know just observing the landscape and especially just this one stretch of the fifteen miles between the community that was nearest to ours and and downtown. It's just I had this idea of the of the, of the landscape being really a malleable thing because yeah. it seemed like it was always con- con- continually changing, and I became fascinated with landscape and built environments and just kind of visually tracking things and also visually processing you know somewhat chaotic yeah. uh, environments that were sometimes seen at really high velocity and that's always been a really interesting thing to me and continues to influence you know some of my work uh, seems like it almost might be a game like you're taking this trip over many years and back and forth from your house to the city and then you're kind of like oh i caught something different you know like i you like you see something changed or someone did something and then it's like ah you know like because you kind of memorize the whole thing right yeah and i think that you know some of my early i started taking pictures when i was 12 or 13 and also making movies my brother and i made made a lot of films um starting when he was 12 and i was 13 and so but yeah, I think also there was one. Some, some of my early f- f- photography was was sort of p- 
process documentation, <laughs> you know, because things were, I would see something and I say, I, I think that this is going to, something about mm. this is going to change or there would be a sign, a de, you know, a sign indicating a development was coming or something like yeah. that. And so it was sort of a tracking thing and a, you know, visually organizing and just, just trying to kind of visually process things that were changing very quickly. And so I became fascinated by, by built environments and, you know, landscape architecture and history of developing landscapes. I read a really wonderful quote by uh, J.B. Jackson, the landscape historian, Mm. and he said, uh, a landscape is a concrete three-dimensional shared reality. And so, you know, when you're observing landscapes or when you're traveling or you're seeing something new or something that you're seeing over time, I don't think it's just a passive thing, that you're just in a passive observer, especially if it's an environment that you're working in or that you're you're very familiar with. It's more more a different kind of engagement, I'd say. Yeah. So there was, uh, I mentioned the Walker Arts Center, I was thinking about this recently, about just about artists that I was influenced in when I was younger and throughout my life. There was an, one extraordinary show. Um, it was or actually an installation by Robert Irwin. Mm. And I guess I was about 15, and I, I was uh, the museum had just reopened, beautiful new building. And I came around, I was kind of exploring the museum by myself, and I came up a stairs, and I came around a corner into a gallery, and I just froze, and there was this extraordinarily beautiful installation by Robert Irwin. I think it was referred to as, um, you know, or the title of it was just Untitled. Let's see, there was a, another name in his notes. He called it Slant Light Volume. And it was a scrim that was sort of lit from behind and otherwise this sort of big empty room with this gorgeous scrim. And I walked in there and I just I froze and then I just burst into tears. It was just, mm. it was so beautiful. Wow. And it was sort of beyond my comprehension how something could be just so exquisitely beautiful. Yeah. And have you seen his piece in Marfa? I have not. Oh, yeah, that's it's a whole building that's essentially that what you just described. Yeah, and I read a, read a quote um it said um throughout his long that in, on the Walker site because I was looking at it the other day. Throughout his long career, Robert Irwin has pondered whether we ever have an absolutely pure or direct moment in front of a work of art, and I absolutely did. It was mm. just it was just so profoundly beautiful. Um, and so I was thinking also the other day about this much earlier when I was a kid. I was, I was watching a rerun of this show. It's an old show from the '60s called *Man from Uncle*, mm-hmm. and some people may have never heard of that, but it was a it was a sort of a lampoon of the spy movies and the sort of the craze and the you know yeah. James Bond and you know the James Coburn made a similar sort of humorous film about called uh, *Our Man Flint*. It had this super high production value. It was really fun to watch, and they had all kinds of gadgets and stuff. But it was also definitely tongue-in-cheek. And there was one episode that I was just pretty, was just fascinated by. And it was about a band of musicians that had come from Bulgaria to the United States. 
and they were they're all sort of like these sullen desultory guys that yeah. but they had like beetle haircuts the idea was that they were singing this song that became this pop song in the show called my bulgarian baby it was a really silly song but the idea was that it had it was embedded had some propaganda embedded in it, it was sort of mind control yeah. of the the kids that were you know were going to be hearing it and that was another thing that was just really really fascinating to me as a kid i thought about that idea of something having embedded code or having some kind of you know not just being like blatant propaganda but something that had this kind of subliminal subliminal information exactly mm-hmm. and so that was those are two things i, I was thinking about in the last couple mm. of days of like these these kind of disconnected but but just really kind of stunning things that happened uh, when I was a kid. So it's almost like when you saw that Robert Irwin piece, there was something he created in this environment that kind of just like went right into your brain. Exactly. had an effect on it you. It was just like this pure experience of, of just this exquisite simplicity, but also just, you know, so much more, you know, just yeah. incredibly elegant and beautiful and mysterious. And that, that was, a, that was another part of it. Mm. There was a, sort of this mystery to it. And did that moment inspire you towards something or did that, how did that change your life in some way? Like, what did that make you feel differently about or want to do differently with your life? If anything? Well, I think it definitely, I think it had a impact on my art making because I felt like something can have different meaning for different observers or different people that view something. And also that, you know, that kind of mystery aspect was really fascinating to me. Um, and that there wasn't, it wasn't really completely explained or there really wasn't a need, need to have like a context or anything. Context. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of my, um, some of my objects, and maybe some of the things I photograph as well, there's, in terms of the photographs, the immediate question would be, why Why would somebody document this? <laughs> yeah. But, but or the object, um, I, I, like, I like for the objects to have sort of a, you know, some unknowns about them. They may be purely decorative, or they could have some, you know, sort of functionality, or they could be an architectural model or something like that. An artifact. An mm-hmm. artifact. But it's not completely clear, you know, it's that, that there's different, le- I guess what I'm trying to say, or maybe maybe another way to put this is that it's that things can have multiple, multiple, yeah. multiple layers. Do you feel like in any way that after seeing that Robert Irwin piece that I could almost imagine, have, I mean, I don't know that I've ever had an experience like that with art, even though it seems like that's what you want. That's what you're looking for. But I'm just wondering, I could almost imagine someone having that kind of an experience wanting to keep recreating that throughout the rest of their life in some way for themselves or for other people. Yeah. You know, I accepted it as something just profoundly unique. I didn't really have the feel the the need to like recreate it or duplicate it. I think it, I, I admired it and, and deeply profoundly appreciated it for something it's just completely unique you yeah. know and i think but there's definitely things that just you know that that impact of just and, and also the the instant experience of just like bursting into tears just because yeah. I, I was i was overwhelmed by it and did you and at that point in your life were you thinking about being an artist yeah you were okay. yeah my whole i i think it's you know very very early on you know i was i've been making things my whole life okay. and and i definitely um 
at that point, I kind of had my eyes on, you know, art school and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I was yeah. like 15 or so. Yeah. So I knew that that was my, my path. So, you know, there were other times where I had these kind of epiphany moments, I guess, you yeah. know, related to my photographs. I remember when I, I had was shooting with a with these browning cameras that I found in junk stores and stuff. Yeah. And I had one that had a flash unit on it with these little flash that's things that you'd stick in there. And I was really fascinated by... Um, this was later when I was, you know, late teens or, you know, or something like that. And I was just fascinated by going into like a very dark place and, you know, knowing or thinking about it ahead of time sometimes and picking out particular places I thought would be interesting, but shooting this flash and having it just really flatten out this otherwise for just for a moment to have like this instant where it just lit up this place and and this environment it was really more an environmental thing it was more in that rather than a some particular specific thing within that environment and i i was in an alley in um, near loring park in downtown minneapolis and where i was living at the time and i came upon this it, it was just kind of like this Configura- uh, configuration. There was a. It was a building that had probably from the 1920s, and it was the back of the building. And so there were like these Corinthian columns on the side of the building, and then there was like a you know little sort of pedestal on the building. And then uh, it was apparently a loading dock or something, or had become that. And so there, somebody had built like a concrete bumper in front of that, and there was like a little platform. And in there, you could see all these marks and scrapes. And somebody had built another bumper in front of the original concrete bumper made out of tar. And so there's all of these layers of time. Of time, yeah. yeah. And there were like these human marks on yeah. this, these layers of these different things that you could just observe that there were these marks that were some from maybe 20 or 30 years before, like some place where something had backed into it or whatever. And I took the took this picture, but it was just seeing all of those things. And that's that's part of living in a in a you know in an urban environment as well, or a place with a lot of history. Is that it's like these layers, like mica, you know, that the, you can sort of see this sort of this yeah. stack stack of all of these different aspects or things over time and different human marks and different sort of adjustments and so that's that's also a, something that kind of runs through a lot of my work and my my photographs is that it's just this kind of adaptation and these adaptation to these different types of built environments you know and sometimes they're really subtle and sometimes they're over time and they're you know and i, th- I think i've always been extremely fascinated by that and i think i do a lot of my photo documentation it has sort of a connection to that yeah what you were saying about using the flash what that makes me think of something that you also have an interest in is these dioramas Mm -hmm. because i almost imagine like some of the scenes like uh, i think one of them was in your pecha kucha slideshow it's like a mountain lion with a deer and coyotes it's almost like if you were standing there and you just like took a flash shot of that scene yes and then there it is in three dimension exactly. in a natural history museum. Exactly. I and mean, when did that interest start? And do you see that connection? Is absolutely. That, that's related, right? You know, and I've been thinking about that too. And I think that um, I've always been fascinated by dioramas. And they, the thing that fascinates me about them is, and they're kind of, it's kind of a lost art. I don't think people are, you know, are that 
And so um, in, in my Pecha Kucha talk, I referenced the fantastic uh, Texas Memorial Museum has just in some is just some really. I didn't beautiful, even know about that. <laughs> oh my, it's an incredibly beautiful museum, and it's just a block away from the stadium. Really? Yeah, and it's an incredible museum. They have dinosaurs, and they have all kinds. This of, is on UT campus yes, here in Austin. Yes. Oh, it's <laughs> okay. incre- you definitely have to see it. And every anybody who's listening to this is not seen it. I've never heard of that. Need to see this beautiful beautiful museum. Um, a few years ago, I talked to the director once I was there and I, I was, was able to speak with her and had a great conversation. Strangely, the uh, university cut all the funding to it uh, several years oh. ago. And so they have kind of a skeleton crew that's working there, but it's just impeccable and these beautiful examples of these exquisite dioramas. And one of the things I talked about in that talk that you mentioned is um, just a fascination with, with the dioramas, but there's there's something about that. It's like a suspended time. It's not it's it's little it seems a little different than than a photograph because there's there's these sort of layers of reality. Like in the foreground there'll be something oftentimes a taxiderm you know, some kind yeah. of taxidermy creature. And these kind of odd con- um, moment of the of the one you mentioned is a beautiful, huge one. It's like fifteen, twenty feet across, and it, of these this encounter of these different creatures that are kind of warily looking at each other. And so, in a sense, it's like a moment in time, but at the same time, just the because it's it's a taxidermy creature that was once you know, and then it's. Uh, there's the foreground detail, and then there's some sort of physical objects, and then there's a painted backdrop that's that's uh, that's behind it that gives a, a, a sort of false perspective or yeah. sense sense some of depth. Yeah. A depth and perspective of the landscape in the background, and it's a very strange way to present uh, this type of natural history or this, this sort of tableau. I've been thinking about this quite a bit the last couple of days, and I think that that to answer your question that there really is a connection of that fascination with you know of that may be of you know being inside a vehicle you know whether it's a train or a bus or a car and a, and looking out through the glass and you know and see it at this environment yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so i think that there's definitely some kind of connection there but i i yeah, the the dioramas are very very unusual. Um, just just because of the way you know the the they're presenting an environment or just sort of a placement of these creatures within you know what what would would be their natural environment, but in a very articulated way. Yeah, I'm wondering uh, what are some of your earliest uh, memories of seeing dioramas like that. Um, I think that where it had an impression on you, you know. The um the Minneapolis Public Library used to have a museum the earlier uh an earlier structure had a museum in the basement and I think there were some dioramas there, but I just one of the another thing I mentioned in that uh the Pecha Kucha talk is that as a kid I was when I would watch cartoons I would always watch the, uh, the, yeah. <laughs> the watch the background. It was was as as interesting to me, yeah. not kind of like the high speed background, um, as much whatever the action was going on in the foreground. Mm. And so, um, you know, to answer your question, I think that it just 
you know, early museum going experiences and, you know, in our travels or, you know, I, I remember that they've always been, I've always been fascinated by them. I'm thinking about, you know, this way of observing the world. I wonder how that affects your perception of you being in the world. Cause it's like, Oh, I'm in here, I'm here and I'm observing all these things out here. But then are you, are you a part of it also? You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I de- that's what I was trying to I was tr- trying to address a little earlier is that I don't see it as a ex- like as a passive you know ex- oh a, yeah yeah right, you know, right I think right. I think it, there's an engagement and usually when there are places I'm very familiar with sometimes with my photographs it'll just be something that that's interesting to me that I come upon you know just by chance or in travels or whatever. And there's other times where there's things that I observe over a co- sometimes over a course of years. I've done it, we, uh, my family and I have done a lot of traveling back and forth between um, Austin and the Gulf Coast, and there's a lot of really great little towns along there. There was one there's one place that I was in town of Quero that was at the very edge of town. It was a little motel, and I was just kind of fascinated by all of the different. And kind of this configuration of this very landscaped uh, environment, and then it's right at the edge of the. At that point, it was very end of the uh, the last building in town, and then it was a kind of a rural countryside. Yeah. And so there was just this sort of transition between this very manicured landscape and these, all of these lines in the parking lot, and all this kind of directional stuff, and uh, in the parking lot, and then it sort of dri- in the just in within your view, you can see it sort of start to drift into this unmanicured, uh, yeah, undeveloped, f- undeveloped yeah. part. And so those sort of transitional spaces are also very fascinating to me so i'm wondering if we could um maybe jump back to you know that you were saying when you were 20 you moved again i'm mm-hmm. just wondering like what was your life like at that time what was your art creation like and then what would, what was that move about and where did you move yeah that's a good question i i uh moved um i attended uh, art school for two years and it was a really great experience i had a uh, professor uh, Kinji Akagawa, who was very important to me and a mentor and uh, became a very close friend. Um, I just decided to leave there just because I was had this incredibly active create time of creation. I was making a lot of films, a lot oh, okay. of, yeah, it's a lot of doing a lot of uh, film documentation. And so I kind of had this path where I went from, you know, very, very early on doing some kind of snapshots and pictures when I was a kid and also being very interested in photography and studying history of photography and film history um, to where I kind of backed off from that and I really focused more on filmmaking mm. and then, you know, kind of got back into photography as well. I moved to Boston when I, uh, I guess it was about 20 uh no actually 25 okay and so i moved with my girlfriend at the time and um i wanted to make a change and i was excited about being back on the east coast and that was like the second chapter and that was uh, my second city was boston and i kind of adopted it as my second adopted hometown and um it was incredibly vital period uh 11 years that i lived there um, when I first got there, I was looking around for other artists my age, you know, people that I could, you know, from the community to get involved in. And 
the people that were my age at the time were were many of them were associated with the museum school and mass art and they were a little seemed kind of a little clicky and wasn't that easy to con- connect but the the community that I was really excited about and I felt you know really attracted to was the post punk or the kind of experimental music community mm. so i really migrated there and i was very attracted to that i got involved in a band we we started a collective label um i collaboration is is a really the reason i, I taught myself to play saxophone just oh. because i think it's a i love collaboration and it's not not something i can decouple from either my life uh you know collaboration and community activism and collective action uh i cannot decouple that either from my life or my my art practice um and i'm very stimulated by that I, we like i mentioned we started a collective label artist run label um there was a really really amazing environment at that time in that uh early 80s in that, especially in that experimental music and, and post-punk uh, kind of community. And a lot of my really close friends, that I, friendships I developed with artists were people who were like me, had also been, been brought, you know, drawn into that. And so um, I had a really incredible, really exciting period in, in Boston for those 11 years. Um, I got involved in a uh, video production collective, and we did a... Uh, kind of a community affairs program on cable access in Somerville and um, produced some live television, which I'd uh, I'd been involved professionally in media development, you know, for a number of years at that point and throughout my career have have done uh, educational media development and Mm. training development and so on. And so I had been, I had already 10 or 15 years of film and video making at that point. Um, had a really great, excellent experience with that group um, called uh, Somerville Producers Group. I did a uh, live 60-minute interview with Noam Chomsky. Oh, wow. Um, which was really, really incredible. Um, I did some other things that were, uh, there was another show called um, Truths, Half-Truths, and Bald-Faced Lies. And it was kind of connected to the Chomsky show because I was wanting people to think about, you know, delivery of media and and uh, so on. And, you know, just about who the teller of the, you know, who was providing the information, you know, so that and the truths, half truths, not on um, both face lies. Uh, was about people telling stories about a photograph or about uh, a memory that only mm. they they knew about, and so you just had to trust that they were you know they were telling it from their perspective, but that was the only perspective that you had. You, uh, that looking at the image that they were discussing, that was from their memory, and then and then uh, and then talking about it. So, um, like I said, that second chapter and major chapter was uh, when Boston and Cambridge and Somerville um, re- very exciting time so mostly re- music and filmmaking um, and TV yeah I, had, I wasn't really shooting much uh, I had a studio um, across from the Boston Garden um, I was also doing a lot of drawing at that point oh you were okay. yeah and those were large scale kind of in- industrial you know urban urban landscapes and so on uh, and so that 
that was a big part of my work at that time. Um, photography and film it was you know, definitely film, probably more so than photography. Um, what kind of films? Um, I made um, I made a film about, uh, or I captured a lot of film about this beautiful building across the street from my studio at the time, next to the former Boston Garden. It was called the Madison Hotel, and it had been vacant for many years. I believe it might have been developed or designed by Lewis Sullivan, but I'm not sure. Um, It's a beautiful, elegant old building um, that was abandoned, and I was fascinated. You look into the windows, and you sort of see the curtains waving in the wind, and you know it was probably about a 15-story building. And it was eventually demolished. It was was located in the North Station area, which was sort of adjacent to the former West End, which uh, in the 60s had been completely wiped off the face of the earth in in Boston with with the idea of urban redevelopment. And so... My time there in that that area was there was still sort of the last remnants of that neighborhood, and I was documenting that. I was mm. uh, that's that transition of of uh, the room, the final, yeah, uh, the final buildings that were standing in that that area uh, that were eventually completely, almost completely gone. So I think that you know that's it. There was. Um, Earlier, back in Minneapolis, I had, had done quite a bit of films, and there was another one. One of them was uh, called Five or Ten Sites, and it was um, a kind of a collection of landscape footage, and it's kind of looking at an environment from, from multiple directions. Uh, I was also sort of capturing some, some of that c- mm-hmm. content for that as well. I'm wondering, at the end of that 11 years in Boston, what do you feel like you took away from that experience and what did you learn or kind of what did you take with you on to the next move or city? Yeah, the next move was here to Austin. Um, I think just, you know, it just that was really exciting to be engaged in, in, um, you know, in in a really vital community there and a lot of collaborative work. Um, I think, um, you know, just, I think I developed my, you know, developed my eye uh, quite a bit more, you know, just observing and, and uh, you know, engagement in that, in that time there in the city. Um, it's a very, it's a fascinating city with, you know, at the time, I think it's probably changed in, the, you know, more in recent years, but there were very specific, you know, the North End is, uh, and different areas that were very concentrated communities. Uh, so I guess to answer your question, I guess it was just that, um, you know, just really uh, a involvement in, uh, you know, a lot of lot of different things and, and, and in my work, very active uh, production of, you know, different different types of things I was working on. Yeah. What do you think you were at that exact moment right before you moved to Austin? What do you think you were best at? Like, what would you say was like the best thing that you had done? Um I guess that that's a really great question. I'd say I, re- I like the drawings that came out of that that time. Um, I think it was starting to be some, you know, to, to be to develop more of an interest in photography and just about documentation and just yeah. thinking about that. So I, I'm not sure if that's complete answer to yeah. your question, but I think it's it's just more about developing that, you know, more ideas about that and about the. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the best way I can answer that. Yeah. That's a really great question, though. 
So why move to Austin then? I think that, you know, it was sort of a transitional time. Um, I became involved in a relationship, and we found out that uh, my girlfriend at the time was uh, pregnant with our son. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we... um, I think there was partially kind of a nesting instinct, but also just sort of a kind of a leap of faith. We had we knew people that were here, and close friends that were from from Boston that had moved there, and family members. Um, and so it was. I, I think it was just it was sort of a, you know I think we knew that it would be a place that would be more likely to be able to afford some place to live, or you know maybe to buy a house. Um, and that was a lot of it. I think it was, it was sort of such a radical change when we knew that we were expecting this child. And so um, came here. Um, as you can imagine, in 1991, things were quite a bit different than they are now. Yeah. It was a much quieter place, kind of a sleepy college town. Um, but at the same time, as I mentioned professionally, I had been doing um, media development and I had heard, and I was starting to just to sort of understand indications that there was a new media, or as they were calling it then, and uh, or, you know, educational media community that was developing here. Hmm. So it was partly, you know, that was part of it too. Um, and there was just sort of a sense that there was something that was starting to develop here. Um, when I worked in, uh, when I was in uh, Boston, I worked at Harvard University for six years mm-hmm. in the edu- at the uh, Graduate School of Education in the media division, and uh, we had a lab. And at, like any graduate school, it was a teaching institution, but also a research institution. And so I was excited about new technologies and about you know coming from the perspective as an artist and uh, you know a filmmaker as well, and also just you know, feeling that that was something that I could bring, uh, you know, that I wanted to get more engaged in. And so it turned out that there actually was an amazing, very small, but very vital um, media development community here and educational, uh, you know, also corporate media development. And there was a very in those at that time, because there was a small number of people and it was a very new, uh, a lot of a lot of new things happening, uh, sort of the advent of the web and a lot of other things. But there was very a very collaborative environment here, and it was very seemed very non-competitive. Where somebody would say, "Why don't you? We don't have the resources to do what you want to do, but there's some people over here that can can help you, and you, we'll help you get it put together a team." And and so there started to be a sort of a different way of developing things where people would sort of put together sort of a project orientation to develop. So I was really excited about that. I became involved at uh, uh, American Institute for Learning, which was a community-based, um, became a charter school. It's now known as American Youth Works. And so I worked there for several years uh, developing educational media. Hmm. But So that was kind of meandering a little bit, uh, but uh, that's, that was a lot of the things that started happening at that time. And uh, that community, at the, I think at the time there were like three major new media cities uh, at the time. It was New York, San Francisco, and Austin, and then Chicago and others started to you know, develop. But that was an exciting time for that as well, that there was sort of an explosion of the potential for that uh, you know, for mm-hmm. that that new media to 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 uh, you know to be a dominant uh, yeah. part of our lives, I guess. What about your artistic practice? Like, how did that 
change or evolve? I definitely became, you know, I, I started to work really uh, focus more on my object making and my photography when I came here. And so those are the two things that have, in the years that I've lived here, that have been kind of the primary uh, media. Um, I started working quite a bit more on this, on building these objects. And um, there's there's definitely a crossover between, between the, the object making and the photographs. I think a lot of the traveling back and forth to the coast and, and just kind of, you know, engagement with that. Um, that's that's kind of the, the direction my work yeah. evolved at that point. Maybe elaborate. I know you've spoken a little bit about it, but elaborate a little bit more about the connection between the photography and the sculptural pieces. Yeah, the... And what it's and what is it like to make sculptural pieces? Because it's, you know, I've been a photographer most of my life, but I do have a very strong desire to make things and I've never really done that you know and I just I, I'm kind of jealous like I think yeah. uh, like woodworking or whatever it is like what is that like what is that practice like I guess in terms of your question about the the crossover very early on when I was making my my early films um which were you know non-narrative um there was a sort of a crossover there because I started making props for the for the films mm. and there were these objects that that were the first film was called colorful stories and it was very much about thinking about the projected f- f- film as like a very flat you know projected mm. light on a flat surface and so i was thinking about sort of the 2d aspect of of this projected light on a on a white uh, space, mm-hmm. but I would I was making props that were brought into the into these different environments. The next film was, um, and this is kind of going back a little bit just to get to yeah, the, yeah, where yeah. we are. This next film was called "Let's Have Another Look," and that was really about looking at f- film space as a three dimensional space and about looking at things from multiple angles. Mm. And so as um, you know, just kind of trying to circle it back a little bit without getting too far off the track about just about the crossover aspect. I'm fascinated by this, you know, they're not just like display objects. They're, they're things that each one has its own kind of origin story or has its own kind of components to it. This is speaking about the, the objects now. Um, as I said, some of them, I think there's an influence that I've spoken about before um, today and other times about the, you know, fascination with uh, natural history museums. And you've seen these objects on display that are taken out of their environment, you know, their natural environment where they had a purpose or a functionality and putting them in this display environment, it's sort of putting them in a, in a completely different context. You know, like recreated. Yeah. And they're sort of plucked out of their, you know, inv- original environment and put into this display environment. And there's a, there's a strange aspect about that too. And it's not, it's not like the appropriate, sometimes a very negative aspect when there's this appropriation where something is pillaged from someplace and brought into, a, you know, into a, this kind of 19th century idea of a museum or what, you know, about to bring in. And there's other things where, where it's more of a learning experience or sort of putting things into, you know, in a more of a positive aspect. 
Um, and then, so there was, as I mentioned, sort of prop building and things that were there, things were directly crossover. But I think also the objects, there's crossovers by the same sort of thing about seeing things sometimes, uh, you know, at high velocity or high speed, seeing things in back, like background buildings or background um, things in these transitional spaces between, you know, urban and industrial or exurban or mm-hmm. you know, these sort of transitional places where you'll see something that seems like it might be out of place or it just those are the things that kind of, you know, that I attached to or that I see. Mm. And just what about the actual making of them? Oh, like, the making. That like? Yeah, that, that's a, I think that's a good question. Um, I... Um, I, I love the. I work primarily in wood because um, it's a beautiful material. It's a natural material. It has beautiful grain. It's gets very malleable, and it can be sanded and you know and finessed. But it's also you know very solid. Um, there's there's a way to you know. I think over time I've also been interested in you know bringing craft and just just sort of the. You know, structuring uh, structuring the objects and having kind of an integrity in the in the the building and the making of them, and I have a lot of pleasure in that. Mm. They tend to be made over a long period of time. You know, they're not some things I'll make more, more quickly than others, but there's some that I'll you know that I'll I'll work over a long period of time. Sometimes over a couple of years, mm. I'll work on a couple of different objects at a time, and so. The, each one has, as I said, each one has its own sort of, uh, just as an example, a couple of the pieces. Um, there's one that was sort of inspired by Double Helix. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, a, it's called Double uh, double Diamond. And um, and also sort of like by cellular structure and things like that. So just these organic forms. There's another one um, that's called Observation Tower. And that one has a has a also sort of mysterious looking, very simple form, and um, but it also has an internal light in it. So the observation tower kind of refers to observing it, but the idea that it might be observing, uh, you know, there yeah. might be some kind of mechanism in there that's you know capturing something or sort of surveillance thing. So. The actual to get back to, to once once again try to circle back to your yeah. question, the, the actual physical work of it is is uh, is really rewarding. I love I love working on it. I love working the surfaces and the the you know the textures and the colors and excuse me and working about how, working and the interest in the way the light light hits it and can can really change the change a lot about it. Yeah, it makes me also think about color because you, they're often painted different colors, and I think that color is definitely something that's prominent in your photos often. Like, yeah. well, how do you think about color? Um, you know, it's it's not just decorative. I think it's definitely a very strong element in all of my work. Um, you know, really vivid colors, and I think it's that just sort of goes back to just sort of a lifelong thing of just sort of visual processing and just visual organization. Um, and I, I think that that's a way just to, to sort of 
It has to do with just looking and seeing. I think those are the things when I when I you know when I look at things that those are the things that sort of stand out for me. So yeah. that's not a very good good, good answer <laughs> to your no, question, it but it's uh, it's just the, it's just really integrated into the way that I see or that I process things. I guess is that that sometimes when I'm sort of like visually breaking something down, I, it's part of the structuring of you know of making sometimes sometimes in a way of organizing you know visually organizing a chaotic space and sometimes just just sort of a way to to just visually process something and maybe you could describe your practices around like photographing or working on sculptures like i'm just i just want to kind of like understand a little bit more about like the rhythm of your artistic life like are there times like every week where you're like i'm gonna go out and just walk around this neighborhood for two hours and take pictures or every day i spend an hour in my workshop or something like you know yeah i think um it's a pretty continuous thing there's there's some times where um you know working on some of the objects that it involves like i currently work at home i don't have a have a studio space at the for the current time and um and so sometimes there's a you know they have to bring tools out and i'll I'll have a space that i work in and so the objects are you know is more of a sort of a setting aside time to to do the development and uh, with photography i think it's it's a combination of just having having a camera with me most of the time and seeing things and stopping to look at them sometimes choosing to document them and other times just you know other times not and so i think it's pretty integrated in pretty much everything i do yeah yeah. What was there's a hashtag on your Instagram stoplight analytics. What is that? Yeah, and that's oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, that's um, it's an opportunity just to sort of look around and 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 see things uh, when you have that opportunity. You know, where you're stopping, you're not you know not driving around, and it's not unsafe to to you know have one hand on the wheel and the other yeah. on the camera. I think where that that comes from, it's just sort of to say, oh well, look at that. You know, that's that's very interesting to see all of these things and all of the different layers and all the different human marks and all of the different things that are, you know, sometimes roadside environments are designed to attract uh, commerce or whatever, you know, attract customers. And then Robert Venturi wrote uh, Learning from Las Vegas and about, you know, that whole aspect of this, these massive, you know, spectacle of these places that are, yeah. you know, that are, you know, the lights are intended to draw you in and so on. So sometimes when you're, you're driving around, especially in the city or an urban environment, there's, there's these environments that are, you know, meant to engage. And there, there are other times there's just utilities or there's things that are part of the running the, yeah, yeah, you know, the yeah. in, that are infrastructure things that are interesting that may not you know have any planning to them at all other than to, to you know just to get the, whatever the conduit to the energy or whatever it is mm-hmm. uh you know and other times so there's a sort of it's sort of a chance i guess the to answer your question it's sort of a chance aspect about just sort of stopping and looking at something when you have a few moments well it just makes me think about road trips or traveling down the road and you're saying you're kind of like most of your life you're kind of looking out the window you're seeing things go by like what would inspire you to actually stop and like examine something you know it seems like you know what I mean it's like two different things it's just observing things as you're passing and you're kind of like you're a part of kind of mentally documenting the progress or changes in it but then there's it's a different thing to actually stop 
and actually walk up to it and look at it, you know? Yeah. I started to tell that story about that Quero Motel. And yeah. That, and I never, guess I never finished it, but there was a moment where I had been watching this over the years, and I'd say, you know, that's not... I'd look at the light, and it would be at the time of the day, or it would be cloudy or something, and I'd say, you know, that's not... It's not really what I, what I, you know, what I'd like to capture. And then one day, I took one one version of it that I, that I thought was okay. I'm I, I got what I wanted, and then I wasn't completely satisfied. So for a few years went by, and uh, and one day I was looking, I was driving by myself back from the coast back to Austin to home, and. I was looking at these clouds, and I said, I think today's the day that I'm going to get ah. get this kind of master capture of this thing that's fascinated me all these years. And so I pulled up, and I pulled into the parking lot of the motel, and I walked over, and I stood there for a second, and I looked over my shoulder, and I watched this cloud go by. And the sun just kind of came through, and all of the you know the light was everything was just perfect, and I got it, and I was like back in my car with like less than five minutes, you know, just back <laughs> wow. on the road, and okay. it was just because it was from you know the knowledge of seeing that over time. Yeah, so that's cool. That's a cool experience. Yeah. One thing I, w- I definitely want to talk about that you had mentioned before we started recording was that you felt like in the last I don't know maybe two last two or three years that. There's been a certain momentum or a coalescing of your work and your artistic practice into these like more public kind of uh, showing and sharing and feedback. And I'm just wondering if maybe if you could talk about that with that's that, that experience. I- that's a great idea. Yeah, thinking a lot about this discussion and looking forward to it, and and thinking about sort of the last few years, I've had an opportunity to look at my you know kind of a broad view or a, you know kind of maybe a retrospective view of all of my work. Um, have a huge body of uh, photographs um, and also these objects. Three years ago, I was selected for a group show at Icosa Collective, and it was that was a really amazing experience. I enjoyed that very much. It was uh, it was curated by Jen Wilson, Betty Mekinen, and uh, Elena Lingshen. Um, it was a four-person show, and I have really have not done a lot of showing uh, in my life. You know, I haven't emphasized that a lot, or I haven't even really sought that out. I've been really f- kind of focused on the creation of the work, and and so that was a great experience. It was an excellent show, um, and it was really, you know, for this chapter three of here in Austin, that that in the last couple of years, that was a kind of a turning point. Yeah, um, because. I really enjoyed the, um, you know, sharing the work and displaying it and discussing it and having the dialogue. And there was a really excellent art talk that came out of that. And so the last couple of years, there was that show. Um, about a year ago, I had a photo solo show, photo show at uh, Lewis Carnegie. And um, and now I currently have a show that's up for this, the month of April. Uh, that's uh, up for a few more weeks. It's a sculpture show. And um, that's been a that's been very exciting to have, and it's kind of opened up a you know a, I've met some really great people, and I'm kind of a you know expanded my community quite a bit, and been very very inspired by that. So yeah. that's been been quite exciting. Yeah, and you made a book too. That's right, I made a book, um, and so the combination of all of those things to prepare. I did, I, I, uh, we talked earlier about the Pecha Kucha talk that was last June of of 2018. All of those things, you know, per, sort of preparing for it, I, I created a book, uh, sort of a self-published book. It had about 25 images in it 
there's a process that goes into that uh, and to the shows about a selection and kind of a sort of curating and sequencing that I've that I really enjoyed a lot. And it's just a, it's a way to and it's a different type of enga- engagement that I really haven't haven't had before the last to this kind of degree up until the last couple of years. What are some especially memorable or meaningful uh, reactions or comments or things that people have shared with you about your work and reaction to it? One thing I, I've heard a few times and I, I always enjoy is people will say about the photographs, they'll say, you see things that pe- other people don't see. And I, mm. and I, that I'm always uh, flattered by that. But I, th- I think um, when I had the show at Lewis Carnegie, I remember at the opening, it was, pretty, it was quite well attended and was very excited about that. But I love seeing people in the room, you know, they were, they would be talking and, you know, really animatedly, and then they would sort of point across to the other side of the room, and then they would kind of go over there, and they would sort of, you know, and I could see that they were, they were starting, they could see some of the visual connections, or they could see some of the, the sequence, and, the, you know, sort of the storytelling, or whatever, the, you know, some of the, the content, I really enjoyed that, you know, and just in having and then having people, you know, ask questions and and uh, having some really great conversations about that. So, uh, as regarding the seeing things that other people see or that are, you know, maybe people don't is, you know, it's just a, it's about looking and about you know we're just continually trying to you know to hone that or to try and develop an eye and to you know to develop that process of documenting those things. Yeah. So. So why make why make artwork at all? What motivates you? What drives you? All these decades. It's an opportunity for for dialogue and for you know just to a, a certain point of view. I think in the last few years, where I have had more of a you know had have had these exhibitions and these and these showings of my work that uh it's just sort of a a a certain point of you know another person's point of view you know it's just a way of seeing a way of looking and a way of observing and a way of engaging with the world you know and uh, i think that that if there's anything that you know from from that perspective it's just it's just a, a point of view you know and it's a it's hopefully triggers ideas or you know other things but um or discussion or debate but um i think that's it you know it's pretty pretty simple yeah what quickly kind of how do you think about the future of your work or your art like where do you see what are you excited about i'm uh very interested in you know i think my work has changed a little bit over time at least with the photographs um there's kind of a wider view like an, a more environmental view i think I, i'd like to do more traveling and i want to co- just continue doing what i'm doing and i want to keep con- keep growing if i can i want to keep developing my eye and my you know technical skills or i think that's it you know yeah. just to, like anyone i want to keep growing and, and keep learning and and keep engaging with people and and my work yeah well, maybe um, to finish, you could just share the details of your uh, show at Agave. Yes, I have um, a show currently up of um, 11 pieces, from mostly from the last 10, 15 years or so. Uh, actually, 12 pieces. Um, I, and I came, the show came together very quickly, sort of spontaneously. I was at uh, Agave Print and talking to my friend Lauren Jabin. I showed her the, my current, the most recent piece. It's a portable piece that's collapsible. 
Uh, it's a long series of work I've done. Some of them are very, fairly simple, just sort of hinged pieces, but some, some are more uh, elaborate. This one has uh, kind of articulated hinges, and uh, and it's a little bit more engineering involved in, in it. And she was very pleased with it and, and said, well, we should show this right now. And uh, and so we put mm. it in the window, in the beautiful window spaces yeah. there. And, um, and then we talked a little bit more, and we decided to do a sculpture show. It's the first time they've done an object-only yeah. show over there. And there, and it's another window. You know, I, I think that space is just incredible for for my work because it can be seen from the street. It, it sort of ties together a lot of the things I love about dioramas and about looking through windows oh. and window spaces. And so that was I was really exciting sort of spontaneous uh, development of the show. Um, it, it'll be up in the month of April 2019. Um, and I hope it's a, you know there'll be other other opportunities to have a number of pieces like that. I've never had an opportunity to have a, the a photo show that I had last year of a you know kind of a wide scope of work, and then this object show. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, and there's a reception on Saturday, April 27th, from four to seven. Correct. Yeah, I hope people who are hearing this before the end of the month can can check it out and also join us on that that day. We'll have a, talk, a chance to look at it and talk about the work. Um, but, yeah, thank you yeah. For, for bringing that up. Yeah, and thanks for your time. And uh, I really enjoyed getting to know you better and hearing about your work. Thank you very much, Scott. You know, as you know, a good conversation is an opportunity to discuss things, but it's also a learning experience, and that's definitely, uh, I very much enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, and thank you so much for all the positive feedback you've given me about the podcast in general, because you're definitely one of the the main people I feel like uh, has been a fan and has made that known to me, and I really appreciate it. Well, it's a gift. I feel like it's a, a gift to the community <laughs> to to have these uh, hear different people's voices, and you know, it's 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 a, a great learning experience and a way to better you know to to grow our community to understand each other's work and get a little bit more background detail. Yeah, great. Thank you well, very th- much. Well, thank you, Seb. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care.